0: What, what were the notes you took?
1: I said, okay, flood it with BS, grab onto enough branches, and FBI taking docs.
0: <laughs> this is, you're ripping my shit off.
1: I know, man. This is the problem. You gave it to, for, for, to me for free. You should have like, uh, come to me with a contract in advance. You probably could have gotten 150 bucks for that advice.
0: Ah, damn it. Is that what it pays right now? Yeah. A, a, a quick yeah. session? Uh, yeah, would I would say. I should have been. I should have been good about this. Um, All right. Uh, This week, our guest is a veteran of more than 20 political campaigns, including Claire McCaskill, Barack Obama, Pete Buttigieg, and Andrew Cuomo, just to name a few. She's helping elect people at almost every level of politics from local to presidential. And her book detailing her insider's view of U.S. politics. Any given Tuesday, a political love story is available now wherever you get your books. Liz Smith, how is that love story going? Welcome.
1: (laughs) Like every love story, it is incredibly tortured and complicated, but very passionate, I would say. Um, Very passionate. Thank you for having me.
0: Yes. and, And unfortunately, Governor Kasich is not joining us right now. But the good news is you get to talk to me and you don't. You won't be derailed by any Bono name drop references or archaic legislation that he's still holding on to as a as an answer and justification for credibility. It'll just be a normal conversation conversation between normal people.
1: That Well, that's good. But I have to. Can I tell a story about John Kasich? And I feel bad because he's not able to respond. But um, this is not the first time that John Kasich has refused to be in my presence and um, again, I'm, I apologize, Governor Kasich, I have immense respect for you, but I do feel like I need to tell this story. The last time that I was in your presence was at the uh, Columbus Dispatch Editorial Board meeting with Ted Strickland. And I was Ted Strickland's super, super, super annoying, persistent communications person that said a lot of really negative things about you, Governor Kasich, or well, now I'm talking to you, Jordan, so I'll just say this. I said really negative things about John Kasich on the record. And we get up to leave the editorial board meeting. Ted leaves before I do. And um, I go and I get on the elevator and I'm on the elevator with uh, Governor Kasich's, or then candidate Kasich's security detail. And Kasich comes on to get on the elevator with me, but he's just like looking down, I don't know, shuffling papers the way that, you know, a future governor does. And he looks up and he sees me and goes, you know what, I'll get the next one. So this is the second time in a row that John Kasich has refused to be in my presence.
0: I'm sure there's only coincidence here. Yeah. Um, Do you, if he was here, what do you think his response would be? Are there grudges uh, that go beyond the campaign trail? How often is that? Or do you feel you can leave those behind?
1: Yeah. Look, I, I left it behind. I mean, clearly he couldn't leave the grudge behind in the moment. But I would hope that 12 years later, after he's become a storied two-term governor, presidential candidate, co-host of a podcast, most importantly, with you, Thank you, I would I would hope that he's let go of the grudge. And I just want him to know that I forgive him for that. And I forgive him for missing me today. And, you know, he can take down my cell and give me a call and let me know if the grudge has been lifted or whatever.
0: I love that. And the fact that you come with forgiveness is is a beautiful thing. We've done 40 some episodes with an ideal of reaching common ground. And we finally have achieved some amount of forgiveness that yes. only happened in the governor's absence. Yes. So
1: thank you. Thank you, governor, for helping me achieve that what, level.
0: This is what I've been saying. When conservatives and progressives come together, you can find a way forward if the conservatives leave the conversation.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's it's, basically what MSNBC is today, now.
0: <laughs> there you, yeah, it's the best kind of compromise. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll have Michael Steele on for like a second, and then we'll let everybody else at the roundtable just decide.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you consider him a conservative, but yes. He's basically now, I think, to the left of me, but I love Michael Steele. Hi, Michael, hi, Michael Steele. So, <laughs> so anyway. You
0: are, you're, you're currently... You're talking about your book. And I just read your book. We're going to get into the book. Congratulations! But I'm I'm curious. Even right now, you are somebody who handles communications uh, yeah. at the highest levels for for all sorts of people. But now you're on a tour handling communications for your own story. Is that a bit of a mind? How how is how is that?
1: Yeah, you know what's really weird is. Like when you're prepping yourself for an interview and then you go and you do the interview and you totally fuck it up. And you're like, "Fuck, man, who the fuck prepped me for this? And you realize it's all on you. Um, But it's good because I don't have to tell myself to remember to cuss a lot because um, sometimes with candidates you have to remind them like hey be a normal person cuss a lot you know that's not really my problem but it is a little weird um, but it's a little bit fun because I don't really have to be on anyone's message and I don't have to like go out and deliver talking points um, and that makes life a lot easier when you don't have to like go and spin and this is just a book about my life and my book's pretty honest so it's fun um, and most of it has been fun I would say. But it is a bit uh, of a mind-fucking. It is a little
0: mindful. Yeah, you become your own boss. Mm-hmm. You, you, In terms of the swearing, you mentioned in the book using it advantageously, like within interviews, correct? You would give yourself one curse word to show uh, uh, humanity yet respect in the space? Is, yeah. is that a tactical decision? And I notice you've already sworn perhaps six times here. So is that a lack of respect or is it a tactical <laughs> move?
1: I think you started out by saying mindful and like once this is the thing, is once you trigger me, like I like I just go off. I go off. So now I've got to limit it. I'm gonna cut back. But um, you know, it's also for me, I like to do a strategic cuss word in an interview also to see how the person responds. Because if someone is like, ooh, and like they get offended, that's probably not someone that I want to spend hours and hours of my day with. And like months of my life working with, because I'm just going to like go on like out on a limb and say, we're not going to vibe well together. So it's a good test of how they respond, I think.
0: And I, you even said that tactically, the fact that I swore first in some ways means I'm opening up the, 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 the rules of this conversation that we can swear. Is that, uh, is that something, especially when you're working with people who are more buttoned up have a potentially a lot to lose in a political office. How do you coach them moving through spaces like that where perhaps an interviewer is going to be more casual than you want them to be? Um,
1: well, I, I don't actually find that to be a problem. I actually like it. You know, most politicians need to loosen up a little bit. And, um, but I, my general rule for interviews is if someone cusses, you don't cuss any fewer than one, less than one time, but don't cuss more than three times. Cause then it seems desperate and like try hardy. Like you're trying to be like super cool. And I think it's okay for people like me to cuss multiple times, but if you're a politician, probably just like keep it to uh, three tops. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a, and you have to, an authentic swear word. It, it, it is tough. I don't want to hear governor Kasich swear or I've heard it uh, separately on a phone calls, it happens, but it is a respectful and you can feel it. It hurts him to use it. So he's using a tactic, but I, I wouldn't want to hear more than perhaps one in an earnest interview with
1: him. Yeah, he's like a G golly son of a post a mm-hmm. postman. Does he talk about being the son of a postman in every zoom interview that you guys do?
0: It's come up. It's, 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 a, it's a calling card. Sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I remember I could probably do a stump back for him, but I'll save that for part two.
0: <laughs> so tell me this, I ask this of every author I talk to How am I supposed to feel about your book? I do that because I'm a broken person inside I need somebody to tell me how to engage with art But for you, how do you want me to feel so, reading this love story?
1: Yeah, so I don't need, and, and it's sort of a feeling, right? And I've talked with other people who have written books about this That they feel like this need for people to like them i don't necessarily i don't really need you to like me in this book and i don't try to write myself in a way that everyone's gonna like um i talk about politics warts and all i talk about myself warts and all so let's just get that out of the way um and what i what i guess i want you to feel about the book is that politics is one it's really important and yes there is this really exciting element to it Um, But um, it's not just like a game, that it is a passion project and that hopefully through my eyes, um, my both naive younger eyes and my more jaded older eyes, that you can see that politics is really important and something that the people who work in it care deeply about. We're not just like these soulless, you know, operatives, operators that just move place to place for the thrill of the game. We do it because maybe we're a little sick inside, but we do really do care about these things. So I guess that's what I want you to feel about it. But I also want you to feel like that the people I write about, that all of them are, that you get more of a window into their humanity, whether or not you like them or not. Um, And you're, you're not supposed to like some of the people I write about, like Bill de Blasio, but well, it just happens that like nobody likes him, so it was pretty easy to do that. But
0: um, you were so tough on Bill De Blasio. You were so tough. I see him running around in in Brooklyn right now. You 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 definitely laid into Bill De Blasio. His his faux philosophical collegiate attitude was something you pointed yeah. to. Yeah, um, uh, yeah.
1: But that's how I would say I would want you to feel about my book. But the I guess the question for you is, how do you feel about my book?
0: <laughs> well, I would I would say I was both well, one it's titillating to see the curtain pulled back. Yeah. Two, it's it's also depressing because I, I see these people, well, I will say this, depressing, but three, inspiring. I yes. think you're able to talk about some of these people, and we'll talk about your relationship with Pete Buttigieg and how you, uh, what you saw in him as a candidate and some of those redeeming elements of politicians that we don't see a lot of right now. Yes. Uh, like the inner workings with Claire McCaskill is fascinating. I think some of the stuff that was haunting to me is is for lack of a better term game but is the the tactics within politics that i think as a rube on the outside you know you understand some of but like i mean even what was it the you talked about working for the edwards campaign Mm -hmm. and and going as a young college student to uh the opponents wesley clark's uh (laughs) event to to push a question on clark to get a response there and i think a, a small tactical move within the world of politics that's uh, fairly benign. But I think like starting to hear some of these details, I think opened up that world about like how these conversations get started and how they did get started. And I think that is both <laughs> right s- interesting to see and a little bit scary.
1: Well, yeah. And I, I wanted to show some of that stuff. I mean, let's be real, like a 21 year old girl going to ask a former, you know, a four star general who would, run NATO or whatever, Been a NATO commander, like that's not exactly Roger Stone level rat fuckery. It's pretty, um, mm-hmm. it's like a one on the 10 of rat fuckery, but there, it was a little rat fuckery. I would give you that.
0: Well, the, the, another one that stood out was in the, uh, when you were working on the Obama's second campaign, Yeah. uh, and it not, it, it sounded a, a lower level of rat fuckery, whatever the respectable rat fuckery, but it seemed like the, the, the idea of bringing up contraception as an issue that wasn't being talked about with Mitt Romney. Um, I mean, it feels quaint now looking at the current political landscape. Right. Uh, but I think it was elements like that. How, how important is is using internal campaign uh, operatives or people working within the campaign to bring up conversations that the media aren't bringing up? Or is Twitter now replacing that need?
1: It's no, it's still really important. Um, you know, and I know Twitter does try to seem like, try to act like people's assignment editors, like, you know, the public editor, like, oh, how dare you, sir, not ans- ask this person this question. Um, and I generally think that it would be better for reporters in general, for people like me and people on this side of politics to spend less time on Twitter, less time reading the comments, less time caring what people are saying about them, less time caring about what people are saying about everything out there, because Twitter is so not reflective of real life. OK, sorry, I just had to get that ran out. Um, what?
0: What? Gonna, we're going to have to cut that out. I don't, our listeners don't want to hear that.
1: But um, no, it is really important. Um, And I do spend a fair amount of time talking about that in the Obama chapter, which is that I do feel like the news cycle or the cable news cycle has really incentivized reporters to just ask about the horse race. Who's up? Who's down? Oh, my God. Did you see this gap? Or like asking Howard Dean in 2004 about, you know, Janet Jackson's nipple like he was actually asked about that like you know that's actually a fascinating question because sometimes when you ask politicians questions like that you get a sense of who they are as a person right it was like when a reporter asked um Donald Trump how he felt about Harambe and reporters all like mock the reporter who asked it but then Donald Trump gave this like 10 minute answer that gives you such a window into Donald Trump's psyche that makes me feel bad about making fun of the Janet Jackson question, but back to your original question, back to bigger issues and Janet J- Jackson nipple and Harambe RIP, um, is that reporters sometimes do get so caught up in the horse race that they forget like, Oh my God, this is a really big issue that's being debated right now. And in 2012, Republicans were trying to, um, uh, where in the Senate had introduced a bill to ban Obamacare from, um, covering contraceptives. And I think that was the basic gist of it. I'm not going to get into all the details of it. And that's a pretty important like provision that affects millions and millions of Americans and millions of American women. And, um, the fact that reporters weren't asking Mitt Romney about it drove us up the wall because you would think, You know, that's something that maybe you would ask the Republican presidential candidate about when the Republican Party is pushing to not have Obamacare cover birth control. Um, And it went it go to it. You know, in the book, I go through how it was then actually a local reporter that got a last minute interview with Mitt Romney who I happened to be friends with because I'd watched Monday Night Football with him. And he was the one who finally got Mitt Romney on the record on this issue. And the Romney campaign completely bungled it. But it is important because I sometimes think that you get caught up in the hamster wheel of politics, right? The rat race. And you do lose sight of the things that, wow, okay, this poll doesn't really affect someone's life. Like what affects someone's life is this policy that I'm not asking about, because, you know, my at msnbc that it might be not be on the news or fox or whatever but that's a shit that really matters and that's why people like me work in politics and it's why people who work in the news should want to cover politics it's because it impacts people's lives well,
0: how, how how do you find out what the shit that really matters is where, where, where do you go i know I, I, twitter obviously is a thing that is is, a, is, a, is a, a creation of a false uh irate uh world that kind of populates with their own angry opinions we understand what it is but it feels like the easiest thing to take the temperature of As, you know you, if you're bouncing around on a campaign how do you get better intel
1: um so a few well a few different ways obviously there's traditional paid research, right? Where you can do polls and focus groups. And those are interesting. I I, I do like watching focus groups because they go like a level deeper than polls. You know, polls will tell you, okay, this issue polls at, this is the number one issue for Iowans. Um, But then in a focus group, you get really deeper like people's feelings like why is this number one issue for them why does this cause them anxiety and so you can learn more about that but um you know this is why you have campaign staff field staff who are always on the ground and um because then they can report back if an issue is like percolating at the doors or on the phones with voters um so you get it from field organizers staff on the ground but if you're like a good politician, you're someone that's out in the community every day and talking to people and you just feel the waves of public sentiment moving on different things. And, um, sometimes it can move pretty quickly. Like I, 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 was on the New York mayoral. I did do, um, a, I, I did uh, help out a Super PAC, but I was on the on the ground on the New York mayoral. But just using this as an example, like in the course of two weeks or three weeks, you just saw the ground shift so quickly from the number one issue for New Yorkers being COVID recovery, right? Because New York had been shut down forever, and you know we'd all been stuck in our small apartments there, and it went from that to crime, like like that. Um, and you know, if you're not of course there are tons of polls done about the New York mayoral, but if you're not seeing the polls, then how else would you know that you have to be out talking to voters? So it's a mixture of different things like that. Um, and less of like what's on cable news and what's on Twitter.
0: What, what's, what's your diet of cable news and Twitter?
1: Um, Twitter is a lot mostly right now, to be honest, like when you're promoting a book, a lot of it is just retweeting mentions of your book. Um, to keep your publishers happy, hi HarperCollins. Um, my uh, my diet of cable news is pretty light. Um, I it's it's heavier right now because I'm doing so many interviews, and I try to keep up with like what you know people are talking about on air. Because like, for instance, right after I do this interview, I'm going to go tape an inter- interview with Fox News. But when I do watch cable news, I try to flip between the three, um, CNN, MSNBC and Fox News. And then I watch New York One a lot um, because I it, like I I in my book, I write not just about politics. I write a lot about the media because I'm very fascinated in the media. And even though I don't work in it, I find it fascinating to see what they cover what they who they cover and why and i want to sort of um demystify that for people as well but it's sort of like a varied diet i don't know what's yours do you have a cable news diet
0: oh i mean i i wish it were more regimented uh it's you know when i was working more daily on the daily show and the shows i had afterwards i was i was glued to it at night when i was doing a show i was watching all of the fox night shows and then when that show ended i i stopped because it was a it was a hateful diet and was not making me a better person. Yeah. Um, I, tr- I tried to go mostly just to uh, just to written sources, you know, online for most of that stuff and leave the cable out of it. But it's still fun to hear what those conversations are. Right. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. I guess I'm curious you're doing a Fox interview right after this. Yeah. and I think you're in, in your book. You talk a lot about the media apparatus. You, sure. you are forward facing, interacting with them consistently in your job over these past 20 years. I'm curious, what, uh, what are you trying to dispel about how Fox viewers see the media? And then when talking to perhaps a more progressive uh, television show, what would you want to dispel as far as the way they see it?
1: Oh my God. Okay, so I think one of my topics with Fox in my next interview is trust in the media. So this, is, this can actually like sort of be prepped for it. Mm -hmm. Um, let's do it let's do it okay so who are you
0: talking to let me let me who do i need to prep as?
1: it's howard kurtz with um reliable he's he was the old host of reliable sources on cnn he does media buzz out so he's the media reporter
0: and we're gonna and he's he's more of a moderate fox guy in some ways right
1: right Mm -hmm. there's no hannity in him um and we're gonna be talking about how um Trust in the media is falling and it's been low among conservatives for a while, but now it's also among liberals. And so we're going to talk about that as one of the topics. And And so you know
0: that, you know that going into it and in your mind, what is a successful conversation around that idea?
1: Well, you know what? You scheduled this interview at the last minute, so I haven't yet, I haven't yet decided (laughs) that. But, I think, but I do think one thing that I want to talk about is why p- liberals do have less trust in the media because i th- and I think it's true is um it's really hard when you see like Donald Trump put on the same like sort of like on the same pedestal as other politicians, you know, and sort of that he should be held to a completely different set of standards than other people. You know what I mean? I'm trying to think of how to say it. Right. But like, Mm -hmm. um, he should, no, he should be held to the same standards, but if we held him to the same standards, the media would just go out and say, this guy is a complete criminally inclined madman. So, and the media, if they do that, then, you know, will turn off. his entire base so they have to do this sort of faux both sides and that drives liberals nuts and i don't know whether it's fair or not i don't but you do see that like sort of brain on twitter that they're like get mad at every single new york times headline because they think it's not rough enough on trump or they think it's too tough on biden and i do think that some of it is rooted in the fact that Donald Trump completely broke the rules of the media and broke the rules of politics. And it's really hard to cover him in an even-handed way that even sounds even-handed, if that makes sense. Now, I'm going to take that. I'm going to put it into a 30-second soundbite.
0: <laughs> I like, this is a good workshop. I like this.
1: Um, but then you also have it where, like, and I can also see why liberals lose trust because, and I'm curious for your thoughts on this. Um, like, I was reading some of the coverage of... The FBI going to um, Mar-, Mar lago I know we're not supposed to call it a raid. It's we're, I don't know what the preferred term is. I like. I haven't read the news yet today, really. But um, and the way that the media covered that was all like based off of what Trump said, that this was this this horrible raid and making it sound lawless and the Republicans going out and saying um, this is completely unprecedented. This is like a banana republic. Um, And the media just ran wild with that spin. And why why are they even giving Kevin McCarthy and these people a platform to say things like that? you know, Merrick Garland is, is acting extrajudiciously. That's a very difficult word and that the um, FBI should be defunded. So that's maybe another reason why liberals um, are losing trust in the media because they are giving a platform to these people and letting Donald Trump, who is not exactly known for his his history of being truthful to pre-spin this and set the narrative before we even know what's going on. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been surprised the governor and I, you know, had a disagreement about this even yesterday. I do think what seems like it's, it is a big deal for the FBI to raid a former president's house. No, sure. But in some ways, this is also not at all surprising. If there's any, if there's anybody who is act brazenly, Criminal in in the last five six years twenty years uh, uh, it is Donald Trump and right. I think if there is probable cause for for somebody who is not going to uh, is going to destroy evidence uh, I'm guessing if 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 you were if you were to tell me there's an FBI raid tomorrow who's it going to be on it's probably the guy I'm going to guess it's going to be on and and yet the conversation is is so quickly taken a hold of by the Kevin McCarthy's and the response to this and what that means and the counteraction to something before even understanding what it was that happened that again we're moving away from a potential criminality by Donald Trump to a faux criminality by uh, a justice system
1: see exactly oh my god so now that's see that's the point why aren't we talking about the bigger issue here the underlying thing like like the FBI hello just didn't just show up there to like, um, I don't know, eat undercooked steak or whatever they serve there. They showed up there because, you know, someone signed a warrant and they had probable cause to be there. And it would be irresponsible for the media to run too wild with speculation, but maybe we should think more about the seriousness of that rather than running with these clown, clownish theories from the GOP. Um, One, one problem though, is for the media is that, The DOJ is doing the right thing, which is they are keeping their lips sealed. They're not being like the Trump DOJ, which basically just like acted like it's personal attorneys and going out there and and saying everything to everyone. But it does leave an information vacuum that the news media needs to fill. And this is the problem with cable news is that it's a 24 hour news cycle. So what are they going to say? Hey, FBI went there. I don't know. We're not going to have anyone on. No. So we're just left with baseless speculation and wildly irresponsible um, statements from the Republicans.
0: Well, it's where I hear like, you know, Steve Bannon's whole thesis of flood it with bullshit. um, is So effective. And I think it's I go to these rallies a lot and I talk to people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, when, when when news breaks, they turn on cable news or they go to a rally and see what Donald Trump arms them with to defend from people like me outside or from family members of those theirs or on Facebook. And it's it's rarely a coherent message. It's just as many different branches you can hold on to. January 6th so quickly became not about the consequences of the people who attacked the Capitol, but more about like, oh, it's Antifa or uh these are right. good people or it's an inside job. Things that actually didn't uh line up uh but enough to get people on past accountability and on to some other point of the conversation. And I think that's always been successful. Like, guess what we're not talking about right now? We're not talking about the FBI taking uh, documents from Donald Trump's house because they allude to some criminality. What we're talking about is the FBI planted something. Is Merrick Garland? Should he be held accountable? Why aren't they telling us more information? What are they hiding?
1: I just took notes. You just did my media prep.
0: I, I, cause I, I, I could nail this job. What, what were the notes you took?
1: I said, okay, flood it with BS, grab onto enough branches, and FBI taking docs.
0: <laughs> You're ripping my shit off.
1: I know, man. This is the problem. You gave it to for, to me for free. You should have, like, uh, come to me with a contract in advance. You probably could have gotten 150 bucks for that advice.
0: Ah, damn it. Is that what it pays right now? Yeah. A, a, a quick yeah. session? Uh.
1: Yeah, I would say. I should have
0: been, I should have been um, good about this.
1: Yeah. But no, that was good. No, I totally agree with you. But the flood it with BS is what they're doing. And it's grabbing onto enough branches. And it's completely incoherent because these are the people who for years have been running around saying the Democrats are the party of defund the police and now are tweeting defund the FBI, defund the DOJ. And like, what do they think the FBI does? Like, do they do they think that the FBI's like only role every day is like going to Mar-a-Lago? Like, okay. who do they think is like doing drug busts and like picking up like, I don't know, white collar criminals and shit like that?
0: You back the blue until you don't want to back the blue. Exactly. Go after the blue. Exactly. But in your in your book, you are optimistic, though. You point mm-hmm. out all of these holes. I guess. How do you this for let's go back to the Bannon. flood it with bullshit. I don't think we have a media ecosystem right now that can correct that because the medium is the message. And we, if you're on Twitter, we know what's going to float. It's 24 hours of news. How do we just keep feeding that? Uh, I look at if, if this is where we're having our political discourse and the media is there, uh, crafting it in some way, how do you stay at all optimistic in the political world?
1: Um, I, and I, I, you know what, I, I say this in the book and it's sort of like what. Band and said it. I say that you have to I've, you have to feed the beast or the beast feeds on you. Um, and that was one thing that we tried to do with Pete's campaign was just keep giving them content, keep giving them new interviews, keep giving them news. And they, they can they'll never settle on like a bad narrative about you. Right. And that's what Trump was able to do so well in um, 2016. Right. Because he would go out and say this horrific thing about John McCain. But then you'd forget about a 20, 20- four hours later because then he goes and like says a horrific thing about how Carly Fiorina looks or something like that. So you can't even remember all the bad stuff and no bad narrative takes hold for long enough because it's just this one long cascade of horrifying things um but so how i stay optimistic among one long cascade of horrifying things is um because i do there are really good people in this very tough business um you know in a business that on one end, you have a Donald Trump, you do have people like Pete Buttigieg. And um, that is easily the most earnest part of my book. You know, I, he did bring out sort of this earnest side of me. And I think he brings out the good in everyone around him. And that's the type of, public servant that we want he's someone who is eminently decent service oriented and like really cares about people and as mayor like really cared about the impacts that his everyday actions had on people both good and bad and um you know he's working i know just like crazy hours at at dot running around dealing with problems that are like you know caused by so many things outside of his control um things like with the supply chain, like with all, you know, the airlines, all of that. But, um, you know, he's someone who cares really deeply about the impact that his his work has on people, not just about like glorifying himself. And that's, those are the politicians that we need to find more of. Um, the people for whom politics is not about them, not about the TV hits they get, not about, you know, how good a photograph is of them, you know, in the New York Times, but about is what they're doing making everyone else's lives better? Um, is what they're doing making your life better, my life better? You know, my friend's roommate's life better. Um, it's going to sound weird without the context, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what really matters. Yeah, I know. But that's what that's what matters is people who view it not just as a vehicle for self-promotion. And you see it every day, especially with the people like Ted Cruz, like the Marco, Marco Rubios. You can't tell me that those guys are in this for bettering the lives of other people. Ted Cruz is just in it to like post and get on Fox News and, you know, go on his podcast and pontificate and say things that you... Everyone knows that he doesn't even believe. So we need fewer Ted Cruz's, more Buttigieg's. And there are a lot of great younger stars, I think, in the Democratic Party that we should be lifting up and who have that sort of attitude.
0: Well, I, I want to get into some of those, too. Yeah. I, I have a question for you, for our listeners. You're 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 the senior communications director on the Buttigieg campaign. Is that yes. is that your official yeah. title? So senior advisor. Yeah. Senior. So you're you're helping craft this message for yeah. an unknown candidate who became such a, a national figure so quickly. I will say, I remember my introduction to Pete Buttigieg in a very unique way is watching these these viral videos of somebody being incredibly articulate and compassionate in a moment really cut through. Right. Uh, and in, even my little progressive circle that I'm in, I was surprised how quickly something like that uh, traveled. Um, and I echo your, your desire for uh, having a politics with people with more compassion, empathy, um, you know, lack of heads. I and mean, honestly, the conversation I have with yeah. decency, that that's the word decency. Yeah. Uh, and I will say if Governor Kasich were here right now, like, I think I- I'm more cynical than he is. He he believes that really exists. And people are there and uh, as a testament to service, which I would hope is the case. It's hard for me to believe that is watching these things. Um, and I, I guess if if we look at a Pete Buttigieg versus a Donald Trump uh, in a in a large election, you are right. Like uh, Donald Trump's going to just flood it with uh, insanity. I go to CPAC and I'm watching Marjorie Taylor Greene be the most popular person there because she can create news with outrage. And I look at candidates like a Buttigieg, who I, is not an outrage machine. As a as a as somebody who's helping with communications, there, how do you win the battle for? Uh, owning the beast for being part of the media conversation without being somebody who's shit posting all the time—it feels right. like we're just building a, a a tower for trolls, as opposed to something that can actually push the the mindset of somebody who's perhaps a little bit more empathetic.
1: Wouldn't it be a bridge for trolls? Because like trolls hang out under the bridge, right? So that's
0: it's better. It's how a bridge to the the tower is the. <laughs> I've lost this metaphor. It's a a bridge to trolls is better. Yes. I'm I'm writing that down. We're learning from each other bridge to trolls.
1: I I mean, so I'm as a communications person, I got to tell you, I am so bad with metaphors. I mix my metaphors all the time. So I, I no judgment, no judgment. Um, so I actually do talk about this in the book that when I started to work for Pete, well, people thought I was nuts, which like, half true. Um, just like generally, not just because of the Pete part, but like, um, people thought I was nuts because, you know, 37 year old openly gay mayor of a town of a hundred thousand people that no one has ever heard of. And he has the most impossible seeming last name to pronounce. So it seems like everything is stacked against him. Um, so then, you know, why are you working from? How does that break through? But then the second thing was people thought, um, very, very smart people, I would say, at the absolute upper echelons of politics, thought that he was someone who wasn't sexy enough, someone who wasn't outragey enough, someone who wasn't yelling, screamy enough, and that he would never be able to break through in the media ecosystem for that reason, because he doesn't go on cable news and just like yell, you know, Donald Trump is a racist, misogynist, white supremacist, xenophobe, whatever. Even though Donald Trump is all of those things, and that was really in vogue for a very long time, and frankly, it still is a bit in vogue in um, the Democratic Party. Um, the reason why he was able to break through was because he offered counter program counter programming to that, um, and like the things of his that went viral, went viral for the reason why things should go viral, like the most decent reason why things go viral. Because, oh my God, this guy can not only speak English coherently, but he can speak all these different languages coherently and answer reporters in their own language. And like that in itself was symbolic, right? Because you had a president in Donald Trump who was so disrespectful toward other cultures and so disrespectful toward other leaders. You can, can name me one time you ever heard him greet um, a foreign leader or talk to the foreign media in another language? I never heard him say one word in Spanish. And it's it's just a basic sign of respect if you're an elected official and you have someone, you know, visiting from another country or whatever. I'm going down this tangent, but it's going somewhere. Um, to, you know, show some respect for their culture. Or if you're the mayor of New York, you give us, you always give a soundbite to Univision and Telemundo in Spanish. Right. And that's how the whole Mike Bloomberg, El Blumbito Twitter thing came about. Um, So like, that's why that moment went viral for Pete, because it was like, so not what people were seeing on the national stage out of the presidency. Um, And, you know, when he was asked by Charlamagne the God on The Breakfast Club, you know, how do you reconcile being gay and eating um, Chick-fil-A? And he said, you know what? I disagree with their politics, but I kind of like their chicken. And like just being able to be a normal person, like that just goes viral. And it says something really sick about the nature of our politics that saying normal things being a decent person, being smart, like that, those things m- help people go viral, and I think it speaks to a hunger that we don't always tap into either in politics and certainly not in the media, which is a hunger for thoughtfulness, a hunger for decency, a hunger for respect, and not just this hunger for these for hate and trolls and um, performative outrage and um, Pete's candidacy, more so than anything I've seen, helped prove that. And if um, one day Pete ever ran for president again and ended up running against a Donald Trump-esque figure, what I would say is don't let them flood flood the zone. You go out there and flood the zone, but you counter-program it in the Pete way. And my bet is that the American people will choose the Pete side not the Ted Cruz, Donald Trump side. But we just, we haven't tapped into that enough in politics. Although I do think Joe Biden does channel a lot of that because he is an eminently decent person. Um, so that's, that's how I think you break through.
0: We'll be right back. And now back to the show. It's interesting. I, I, I was in Des Moines, uh, no, Charleston. Was, I was in Charleston right before the primaries or during the primaries, uh, and went to a Buttigieg rally, uh, and then a Biden rally, and a Warren event, um, uh, and a Klobuchar event. I believe uh, I got to see them all. It's it's really fascinating bouncing around. Uh, and I saw I went to the Buttigieg rally, and it was really beautifully put together. People were excited. I sort of I felt like the energy at a Buttigieg rally was uh, all the volunteers all felt like. The, the smart kids from high school who, like, put together all of the after-school programs. Like, it was everybody was, like, well put together. It felt like you were walking into an after-school event run by the smart seniors who, like, don't drink and are all all just really going to make this thing sing. No, no offense. No offense. You,
1: you, got, you got most of that right. Okay, you, you got a lot of that right. We, we all had strong, you know type a valedictorian energy to us myself included but i do drink i want i want that to be known
0: i believe you drink i believe i believe you're the one cool person who drinks (laughs) and everybody else there respects the fact that you drink that's a choice that you make but they think it's more important to make sure that everything goes off without a hitch and (laughs) has a good time (laughs) i I Uh, think that
1: is a fairly spot-on assessment of our campaign yes
0: it felt i was like oh this but like young 30s put together energy who clearly like a generation of people also who are like can we handle this sh- and, and put together something professional? And then I walked down the street to the Biden uh, event, and and God bless, it was tough. It was in a gym. It was it was low energy. It was uh, Joe was a little bit tired, and it, it 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 didn't look great. It didn't look great for the the Biden campaign. But guess what? The Biden campaign wins that and and goes off running there. And so I look at this, and I I, I I agree with you, but I wonder if the is the system made, does the system want uh, a campaign run like uh, what Buttigieg promises or somebody who is young and with that energy uh, is, is are we set up to accept that as a, a legitimate counterforce to whatever Republicans put up or or like how do we explain what happens with Biden?
1: So it was legitimate enough for Iowans to, you know, make him to for him to win Iowa. It was legitimate Mm -hmm. enough for him to come in the closest second place in New Hampshire primary history. Was it enough for him to win the presidency? No, it might have been it might have been too early. It might have been too much too early. Um, But I also think we have to keep in mind what the electoral environment was in 2020, which is that. Unlike in prior years where Democrats would say, you'd go to Democrats and you'd say, OK, what's your number one issue? And they'd say healthcare or jobs or um, public safety. You would go to Democrats in 2019 and 2020, and I'm sure you talked to them. Their number one issue across the board was who can beat Donald Trump? It's all like, that's what they cared about. And so for all those hours, all of us spent talking about you know, our various policy plans, voters number one priority was just playing pundit essentially. And the pundit take from voters was that the safest choice was the former two term vice president, that he was the most comfortable candidate for them. You know, And I think someone on the Biden campaign described it like in a positive way, and I wanna make clear, I'm using this in a positive way, that he was sort of the comfortable old shoe in that election. Like if you're, you just wanted to slip your feet into it. And I sort of agree with that, that you knew what you were getting into with Joe Biden. And, um, you know, he had been centered for so long. He had been uh, eight year vice president and there was a comfort factor with him and Democrats wanted that comfort factor. And he delivered, he won. And I think he was probably the best candidate We could have put up that year. And I'm saying that knowing that I work for Pete Buttigieg. So that electoral environment was very unique in that sense. Um, And we have to sort of take it year by year, election cycle by election cycle, because, you know, 2024, 2028 could be completely different, um, completely different environments. And I hope we get back to a a place where it's not just about, wow, we have to stop this exit threat in the Republican Party from winning again and make it more about like the stuff we were talking about before, the American people and less about these personalities that, um, you know, unfortunately dominate our politics sometimes.
0: If if Trump runs again, is that just the same election all over again? I mean, it it seems like I I would say in some ways it's a gift to the the Democrats is it's, it's an issue they know how to run on and gets people out to vote.
1: I think it is the same election all over again, um, and man, it, it makes me feel really bad for people who are going to be turning eighteen that year, and that's their first election. Like because one, i voting for Joe Biden is going to be great for re-election. Re- I'm excited to vote for Joe Biden for re-election. He is really. Do you hope proof- he runs?
0: Do you hope he runs again, or would yeah, you? Prefer, yeah, I, I absolutely, him th-
1: I absolutely think he should. And I mean, after the last two weeks that he's had, the I. I I would like the media to stop asking that question of Democrats. And I understand that Democrats have given some fodder for that question, right? Um, By saying, oh, you know, I'm not going to get to that question right now or whatever. And like, if you are a Senate candidate in a red state running right now, the last thing you need to be doing is talking about any national Democrat, not named like Joe Manchin. If you're running in a red state, tie yourself to Joe Manchin, just like hug him to death. No, you don't want to talk about any other national Democrats. So I understand that. But like the media's obsession with this question, how many times do they have to ask me this? Like, why does anyone even care? Do they think I'm like, I'm like texting with Joe Biden being like, hey, Joe, any word on 2024? No, I have no like inside insight onto this. I have the same insight as everyone else. And I do think he should run. But I think that like for the sake of, you know, future 18 year olds, I really hope Donald Trump doesn't run because... It would be nice to have a more dynamic election and not just have a, you know, a redo of 2020. And I think it would be nice for really everyone if we could sort of turn the page on Donald Trump, because he, to my mind, has brought out the worst in American politics and the worst in the American people.
0: I I think the media keeps asking that question, especially on the left. I do think age is a real issue and we don't want to be ageist within this, but it's 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 no big secret. We look to the people in power, and they're all they're all way up there, uh, and have a hard time talking about important things like technology or what the world's going to look like <laughs> in forty years. And I feel like progressives have a hard time asking the question because of fears of ageism of is he too old? And so the nice way of saying it, I think it's it's progressive quo- code in the media of. Do you think you should run again to be like, dear Lord, are we going to have an 80 year old in office right now? Come on, everybody. There's got to be a 35 year old out there who's really who knows how to use an iPhone, who can speak coherently. Let's have let, let's really look closely at that.
1: So I like so I get that. I get that it is about getting at the age question. But like I worked on the Obama campaign in 2012. I was the director of rapid response. And were these like reporters in a coma in 2020 in 2012? Like how did they think Joe Biden talked back then? He, he would always mix up what state he was in. He would always, that's part of his appeal is like the uncle Joe thing. He's not the slickest guy on the block. He's not the, the guy with the silver tongue. Um, and I think most people identify with that because most people aren't like, don't speak in perfect sound bites. Most people don't speak like Pete Buttigieg. And I consider myself more in the Joe Biden camp than in the Pete Buttigieg camp. Like, I don't want to go on TV all the time and have to deliver perfectly crafted soundbites. Like, that's not my thing. Um, and I think for most people, it's not. So I think Joe Biden has never been that way. And I think when people try to use his verbal slip-ups, it's proof that he's got, like, secret dementia, that it is overlooks the fact that this has been, like, who he has been his entire public career. But two, like why should age matter you should age should matter because then it would impact job performance but let's look at the last few weeks even while having COVID, he has been able to lead the democratic party in achieving all these you know legislative wins um in terms of sorry i just think a bug flew into my eye um legislative wins with you know the pack act with the infra, with the inflation reduction act That one always gets me because IRA stands for like so many different things. But um, (laughs) but with the pact, with IRA, um, with killing the leader of Al Qaeda. um, And you can't tell me that just because he's 76 years old that he shouldn't be president. Because if if what matters is actually your job performance and not the superficial stuff, his job performance has been pretty lights out and impressive the last few weeks.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder if if what matters is the superficial stuff in some ways right how 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 are if if we look actually if we look back i want to if we loop it around to you correct me if i'm wrong you you fell in love with politics early on watching the war room yeah. the the world around politics and in your book you describe your first love as john edwards your oh. first political political love as John Edwards. But part of the way you talk about him was the the charisma and the vibe around somebody like that. And so you look back at what you, a politically active uh college student, saw in a a politician back then, what do you think uh young college students are gonna fall in love with in the next few years? I
1: I sometimes think that we view young people as this monolith, right? That like, oh, all people under the age of you know, 22 or under the age of 25 think the same um, or both the same. And I know that, sure, there are some candidates that get them going more than others. Um, And that Joe Biden wasn't necessarily a candidate that you associated with like energizing youth voters. Um, But uh, What we have seen youth voters really care about is one, how we've recovered from the pandemic, Um, because like if you're 21 years old, that's like a lot of time of your life that was robbed from you. Um, you know, the two plus years that we all essentially had to stay indoors. And so the pandemic and the recovery from it, the economic recovery from it, but also like the social recovery from it, the mental health recovery from it. I think it's going to be a really, really important issue for young voters. Um, And making sure that there is... um, like a job market for them to go out to, a housing market where they can buy homes. I think the economy really is going to be the motivating issue. Um, and the fallout from COVID is probably going to animate what um, younger voters care about. But the thing about the fallout from COVID is that it's all, we're only beginning to see it. I The long-term effects of, of this are are just gonna be enormous in impact and frankly tragic in terms of educational impact, mental health impact, economic impact, social impact, all that. So um, that's sort of a depressing answer, but I do think that a lot of that is gonna motivate how voters, how younger voters vote. And it's the candidate who can imagine a better future for them. One where they see life like actually being pleasant and um, life actually being one where they can make a good living buy a good house raise a family not have to turn on cable news and have a panic attack every day um and how that it looks more specifically i'm not gonna we won't know until a year two years from now
0: Mm -hmm. if you take the successes the democratic party has had uh specifically the white house has had in the last couple weeks uh are they getting the right message out
1: um Yes, although you know what is you know what is a bizarre thing, right? Because everyone on Twitter, all the leftists, all the Dems on Twitter, are going we're going nuts over the FBI going to Mar-a-Lago, but and saying you like yes, the day we've finally been waiting for it's it's arrived. But then they don't realize, like, dude, this is stepping on the good news. Like, no one is going to vote on an FBI visit. Raid, whatever the term you want to use is like that's, you know, no, that's not going to animate anyone to vote. It's not going to change anyone's minds about Donald Trump because, you know, either you think he's a criminal or you think he's Jesus Christ. And there's pretty much like no, you know, in between there. But what what will motivate people to vote is if they do learn about what was in the IRA. If they do learn that um, it was Democrats, not Republicans, who are standing up for our veterans who you know suffered traumatic injuries because of you know uh, being near these burn pits abroad, um, so the FBI raid did have that sort of unfortunate effect of stepping on it. But we do have an opportunity to pivot. I think back to talking about these issues and look, the the president hasn't even signed our IRA ira into law yet so we've got a plenty of opportunity to do that and i think it's really smart um, of democrats to be talking about those things and not be talking about the fbi raid. Right?
0: yeah uh well your book uh it's great honestly it does pull back the curtain uh on, on candidates on you you're remarkably candid and open about your your move through all of this uh you also implanted the image of Terry McCallif uh, dancing to "Return of the Mac" in my head. It was great. Uh, it was,
1: you know what he is? He is. You know what? I got to tell you, if you are a bad dancer and you know it, but you still go for it, I have respect for you. That is true. It, I generally I think mean, politicians I, 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 shouldn't I, I, dance, though. Like Pete, you will never keep see Pete dancing. He once tried to raise the roof, and it was the mm-hmm. most traumatic thing I've ever seen. Don't Google well,
0: it. Uh, don't go. I would I, I would say Pete Pete though feels so cleanly nerdy that like a dance could be seen in a loving light. It's uh, but but I I don't think I have seen anybody truly pull it off. Obama Obama did wait. He could he could sway. But I want at most to sway. And somehow the fact that the fact that Trump goes out there and dances insanely to YMCA and people love him for it, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, up is down, left is right. Who knows?
1: I sort of like the Trump dancing, you know, because again, yeah. he's leaning into it and he, he's in on the joke. If you're in on the joke and you're not trying to be cool, then it's fine. Just don't overdo it. But like Trump, the, the only thing that I maybe liked about those four years of Donald Trump was at the end when he would dance to YMCA at those rallies because it just, I don't know, it made me smile.
0: You know what? I'll give him that, too. It was, you know, there's a little bit of joy there. It still came off as trolling somehow. Somehow he made that happen. But
1: I do think he knows what the message behind YMCA is.
0: No, 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 not at all. I mean, I think that's that. And I mean, as somebody who's gone to a million of those rallies and The fact that they always end with uh, you can't always get what you want.
1: Right. Uh, His his playlist was so good. It was filled with bangers. I would download the shit out of that and listen to that, like, um, at the gym.
0: (laughs) I love, they also, I would be there hours beforehand and they would just, they would just keep playing it over and over again. And sometimes they cut it down to, like, seven songs. Um, And, like, they had, I remember, like, on the shortened list, they had Sweet Home Alabama and then, like, Two songs later, the Kid Rock or Uncle Cracker remix of Sweet Home Alabama, which right. felt like was made in a lab for this crowd. Uh, but it was it's they're they're addictive songs
1: and the Broadway tunes. Yeah, I was talking with someone. Sorry, I, I know you're trying to wrap the interview, but you really got me going there. I was talking with some other Democrats the other day because I was watching his rally in Arizona and I was just like vibing to that to that music before. And maybe it's because I didn't have to listen to it as much as I've had to listen to other politicians' playlists. Like, I didn't work on a campaign against Donald Trump, but I could see that if you did go to all those rallies, that maybe it could drive you a little nuts.
0: It drives you a little bit, but <laughs> they stick, I mean, again, to their credit, I think there was criticism from day one on, you know, about YMCA and the village people, right? And they were like, you know what? He loves it. And he's, he's never taken a bit of criticism ever in his life. So guess what you're going to hear for the next... <laughs> four to 14 years
1: god love it i love
0: it (laughs) well liz's book any given tuesday a political love story is out now wherever you buy your books liz thanks for chatting with me
1: yes thank you for having me
0: hey everybody jordan here uh your favorite host of the Kasich clepper podcast thank you for listening this far if you like what you hear click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich & Klepper is a production of TreeFort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. TreeFort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producers, Oscar Guido. Associate producer, Lee Albanese. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for TreeFort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Sound editing by Abigail Sullivan. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, (laughs) Lindsay Whistler, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST.